That was a billion dollar business for us. We were on track and expected just over a hundred million dollars in revenue. And the US dollar dropped. We had to put the company into administration and lost it all. And yeah, that's more tears are shed by entrepreneurs trying to do something that while than just about anything under the sun. Going deep and finding something doesn't work is the cost of innovation, right? Absolutely. This is Brick by Brick, episode five with Paul Bouchard, the founder and CEO of useverb.com. What did you learn that you're going to now use to grow the business? You've got to be able to be super logical and you've got to be able to be super emotional. This thing needs revolutionizing. We need to change this. It's my extremely stupidly ambitious gamble that I might be able to help people be the best version of themselves. You've got four kids. What are you going to be saying to them about their careers and their life? What a nail on the head question. It's listening to these conversations with the intent on how do I increase my personal best. Because quite frankly, I don't want to spend 30 years to learn those lessons. Paul. Hey, Ollie. How are you, man? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Sir. Good to see you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for ages. No, I'm glad definitely. we finally got it sorted. Been a long time, mate. Been a long time. Well, good man. Thank you for coming on. So, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong at any point in this, but I've got my list here of things that you'd be recognized in. 40 under 40, Young Entrepreneur of the Year, Young Engineer of the Year, Australian Product Innovation and Australian Cool Company Awards. And you're currently the founder and CEO of useverb.com, where you're aiming to change the way that businesses and people um, interact and connect with each other. Changing the way people apply um, for jobs. That's it. Back down to the real basics of human connection. Yeah, potentially rivaling, rivaling the big boys. Well, one has to have ambition. Let's put it that way. Yeah, look, we want to be able to. There's some things that we've just seen in the history of finding great people and growing teams that just haven't been done right. And they've been done the same way for 100 plus years. And yeah, some, some things technology can change for the better. And this is one of those areas where we really do believe giving people the ability to be people more in this world of ever-increasing AI and getting away from people almost. There's some things that we've got to get back to the human connection element of, and UseVerb's been absolutely one of those products that we've been really proud to put together because, yeah, it serves a really big need for, for people um, on all sides of the work spectrum. I'm really interested to hear about your outlook on some of the technology we're seeing at the moment, like ChatGPT. Yeah. But no. before that... I would love to hear, and maybe you can tell all the listeners who don't know what UseVerb is, if you're explaining to a five-year-old alien, what exactly does it look like for the end user when they come on and use the app? UseVerb is a video voice job application tool that lets you say hello and get the job. So the employer would say, this is our job, and they would film themselves. So we have video job apps. It's a bit like Instagram with jobs. So we allow workplaces to show what their actual workplace is. We have some beautiful visual job ads. So you click the apply button. It'll pull up basically your selfie camera like you would on Reels or any one of these shows that you do. The goal is literally for them to just say hi, tell them something interesting or answer maybe a specific question that may be in the job application um, to help them introduce themselves correctly. I'm really interested to hear about your background and how you got to where you are. Okay. So we use verb. How did that happen? We've got to go back almost a decade now to where it really happened. And look, I've ran a couple of um, robotics companies. We went, well, how are we going to find the right people? And we started from that angle. And 
Then we started realizing this has been the same thing from starting tiny little service-based businesses or hiring an assistant all the way through to operating at the top leagues of the engineering industry. It's always been about the people. So how do we find these people? Group interviews, reading CVs, cover letters. It takes so much time. As a small business owner, there's two main problems. Can't get applications or get so many applications you don't know who to hire. We'd sit there. It was usually an after hours and... It was really quite transformative because we looked back on it and we had been hiring senior engineers and getting nothing from them. And we were hiring graduate engineers and getting the world from them two years into the project because they're up to speed and their ability to pick up. Look, it's not always this way in every industry. So it's one thing that worked and it wasn't seniority. It wasn't years of experience. It was actually down to the people. Why did they want this job? What was their driving force? What was the agenda they had for their life? Where was the vision they put themselves in in the future? Someone who's seriously passing a 65, 70, their capability, but wants to do this and is passionate and has some vision of themselves being successful by doing this in the future, will surpass someone who's a 90 and is doing it for a paycheck or doing it because they think it's the right thing they should have on their CV next. Okay, so you're having these conversations and you've realized there's this issue. So then... Absolutely. So what we did there was we revisited the fundamentals. What's the journey that everyone goes on? We mapped it out. What we discovered was basically people hire people who we believe their paths will align with our paths for the reason we need to come together. That was the core of it all. And we were looking, right, well, but how do you do that? Because reading a couple letter, reading a CV, this has been routinely take us two weeks of, it could take us 40 hours to go through application pools and actually find the right people in it. What is the point where we go, yeah, you know what, Ollie, jump on the team, let's have a shot, right? That point was when we had met them. It was always after we had met them, we had basically met them in person or over a, a, a call and we had gone, right, I believe that what they want to achieve is what they say they want to achieve and I think they can do it. It was just a done instinct. And coming up from a tech angle, what we found was sitting down with that person wasn't so much as important as seeing that person. As soon as we saw that person and heard that person, we all, our gut, your gut instinct kicks in and you go, I like this guy, I think he's in the right direction. I can't see him working in the team, can't see her working in the team, right? We noticed that, the, um, that there was a youth trend in Snapchat, there was a youth trend in videos. So we're talking way before the Reels and TikToks and all these came out. We really watched this upswell of people prepared to put themselves on video and send it to strangers. And we're like, this is perfect. That's very interesting. So you notice when Snapchat came out, you're like, okay, this is going to lead to people being more comfortable on camera. 100%. Because I remember distinctly in like 2012, I, I would watch YouTube and I'd be like, that's really cool. This is entertaining, but I would never be a YouTuber. And I'm sat here now with you recording a podcast video. So <laughs> it's interesting that you spotted that. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, we just started to notice that trend and we were like, all right, how does that, how does that rhyme into what we're after? And we really do. So we offer video, voice um, and text. So we offer people options. We offer people options to meet the way they feel more comfortable to meet. We offer companies the ability okay. to prioritize and select whether they want and There's different bits around the world. But in essence, you can say hi, you can send a voice message hi, or you can type a cover letter and, and say hello. Okay. How do you prevent bias creeping in? When this all first came in and we ran off down the AI camp and we ran down the sentiment analysis and video analysis to try to give a score that would help balance that out. We went to the end customer and went, what do you need? They were like, oh man, you just show me the person, I'll know. Right? So the hiring managers now, you just show me them, I'll know. They didn't need the extra cent. And this comes back into the bias side of things, Ollie, because 
The bias was largely if we injected a platform and said this person was better for the role or not, then we're taking on that responsibility of actually a bias saying Ollie's better for the role than Max or Sally. And the answer in that was not what we wanted to be. We were not, there was no part of us that was here to say so-and-so is better than so-and-so. It was to allow people to do what they do and say hello. That was the whole goal of what we were after. So when we rule back, we just literally provide information. We provide information and we provide more yeah. information in a more easily digestible format that allows people to make better choices in faster time. Yeah. And actually, now I think about it, I think that's a good point because you're basically just making that whole information transfer more efficient. And if you think about it, the biases still exist anyway because if you see someone's name or where they're from in a CV, it's the same issue. So I suppose you're making that more efficient, but the bias is... This might be a bit harsh, but society's problem and that's all of us to work on that together. It's not down to one company to say like, right, that's our mission. You're a brilliant well, it could man. Be, but... It's a society problem. Like that is, that is a person by person problem. That's, that's, and those biases exist in the current process anyway. So when someone goes, and to, to paraphrase some horror stories, there's nothing worse for a job seeker than turning up and, and then having that interview where you walk into the room if you're the job seeker and you go, oh, you feel the vibe straight away. This is not going to be for me. And the people behind yeah. the desk put that Cheshire cat smile on. Lovely to yeah. see you. Oh, my God. How did this guy get through the process? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, everyone picks up on those vibes and many can relate to an experience. Might have been a date with, a, you know, with a, someone you've gone out on. You've been in that situation oh, yeah. where it just hasn't worked and you've known it hasn't yeah. worked, but you've both sat there politely, hoping that you're wrong. At the end of the day, we're just letting people be who they are. If they're going to meet that person, they're going to hop on the telephone call and do a telephone call. They're going to do a Skype or a Zoom. Um, they're going to have an interview in person. They're going to do that anyway. We just allow them to do that up front so that instead of wasting the time to buy a bus ticket or drive and park, um, go attend this interview and find out after three hours of the investment later that it was never going to work, we allow them to do it up front. Yeah. And the big pushback from job seekers has been, well, to 27 seconds is their maximum ability to say hello, doing multiple cuts on it. The biggest investment is a lot of people, all of us have this little person on the shoulder saying, you're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're too skinny. You're yeah. too fat. You're too this. You know, the biggest yeah. thing is just people getting exactly like you. You never thought I'd be a YouTuber or a podcaster. And here I am right now. <laughs> so it, it, yeah. it's minor demons that people have to rise above. And we, we, we make the tool really easy for them to practice to do that without having to submit it straight away. I think it's an amazing idea. And I really hope it's going to be successful. And in that vein, yeah. how do you overcome the cold start problem? I know Tinder famously had and the cold start problem for people who don't know is like in, in a network um the value of a network comes from the network being huge you can't so you have to like grow the network but you have to grow it whilst it's got little value until it's got like a fundamental amount of value and tinder famously had a house party and made everyone download tinder so when they left they all went the next day and tried to use it and apparently that 400 people led to the whole thing going across the world so how do you, how, have you got any plans to overcome that? Have you considered it? Uh, yeah, platform, platforms are a real problem, Ollie. Absolutely. We can trigger aha moments in the employers and the employers understand the value proposition of seeing their candidates. So from a direct sales perspective and we're able to engage that way, we're currently down the path of we're just measuring how that actually works at scale. When it comes to job seekers and that side of things, um, when people are out of employment, they're, 
there is a cast of people that are prefer handshakes over sending emails. Those people exist and they're actually a substantial part of the population from truck drivers to retail and hospitality, right the way through, quite frankly, litigation lawyers, right? We all like to shake hands. We all have this ideology of being in a team where we're with other people who value and trust us. Our goal is to get into some of those in the early stages in their career. We're doing a lot of school programs and assisting them just in the ability. We've had great feedback from them. Again, the young kids are... There's no hesitancy around the video. So we run some games and we've got a schools program, the power of verbs that we're rolling out. We've done some pilot tests, which have, re which have been really successful in even getting year 11 and year 12 boys to introduce themselves and talk about themselves, which I don't know, uh, you obviously re remember uh, being one of them as well. Sometimes it's not the easiest to get those, you know. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. In actual fact, I remember doing a presentation when I started my job in front of 30 people. I'd say I'm pretty confident. My knees were literally shaking, like visibly and uncontrollably. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not easy. And actually, Sorry. that would be a great market for Verb. Like I work in a consultancy at the moment, and all the big consultancies highlight, what, half a million people each? And Absolutely. internally, they have to do recruitment between all the different projects. And I know that at mine, you have to go through, again, loads of CVs. You don't even know who's free. You don't know what roles are available. So maybe there's like an enterprise angle there as well it's amazing enterprise value and some of the places like Goldman Sachs and a few of these sorts of ones that have 35,000 applications a year that come into them uh, we cut down mm. a maximum review time being um, 30 seconds to give someone an actual chance to have a foot in the door so it, it's it, it's quite tremendous when you when you look at it from that perspective absolutely do you do any coaching for people who are, are you say like the schools program is there anything on your website for like maybe someone who's using Verb for the first time, they've never spoken to a camera. We, courses. we do. We've got some courses there to help job seekers. So there's one course that, that's paid and there's a couple on how to use the product. I had, a, um, had an evening with Richard Branson when he launched Virgin Money in 2004, I think, and sat down and uh, used the birdshot analogy to us at that stage. He says, um, but you never know what's going to work. So blow your whistle and take your shot and then back yourself behind your winners. So if you do shoot a couple, find out learn all about them, focus behind them and actually go for it. And it's kind of the same approach what we have been doing here at the moment with Verb is we're, we're not sure what's actually going to take off. We're dealing with such a big, broad and vast market with so many and we're not sure exactly the niche that's going to pick it up. So we are multi-threading, we're trying multiple threads, we're running examples because we know the value propositions there. When we go deep with people, we understand the value prop, but our goal is to condense the value proposition down into something that's super transactional or socially shareable. And to be honest, you'll probably see Verb popping up a lot more as soon as we crack that. We're, we haven't cracked that one quite yet. Why did you move to Texas? Did you start this company in Perth, in Western Australia? Perth is incredible. Perth has a good ecosystem. Its ecosystem is unique because it's literally the most isolated capital city in the world. And as a result of that, it comes with a very unique dynamic of people and the way, the way you think about things. A um, lot of great problem solvers and some great doers there. And it is tremendous. But the ability to do things at scale and the ability to deal with others is, is a unique marketplace. The larger Western Australia is about 2 million people. To put it in context, I think the area I'm in in Houston at the moment has closer to 30 million people in a three-hour drive. So <laughs> it's, uh, there's just an economy of scale. Um, we always intended it to be a US business. It was a, Perth was where we came from. It wasn't where we intended to end up. 
um, and the goal for us to move here. Why, why in Texas? Because of the central location, the economy we're in, we deal with a lot of people and we expect the product to be uptake in early career, hospitality, catering, service, support. And Houston's one of the biggest, uh, basically one of the biggest economies that, that's tried and tested here in the US. So it seemed like the perfect staging ground for us to roll this product out and actually see up, uptake and up, yeah, see how it actually rolls there. The US market was always the intent for this. So we actually launched it in um, San Francisco in 2016. So last quarter 2016 was when we first launched Verb um, over here in San Fran. We, we did get really good feedback. So we had, in fact, we had some friends that do all the hiring for the Super Bowl in 2017. And they were like, this is awesome. This has saved us so much time um, and, and got into it. But working through the details of could we deliver on a sale like that, there was no way we could at the stage of the product we had. There was, there was just too much. It would have swamped what we actually had and we would have needed another platform. So we pulled back from that and we went into engineering mode, built out what we believed would be the next round that could be a starting point for what we were doing. Basically, killing cover letters. That was our pretty much goal at that stage. We we're going to shoot cover letters dead. We we're going to make the world's best cover letter, um, safest way to apply, safest way to hire, all the information you could want. Second quarter, 2017, we went to New York, watched it over there. Um, amazing success again as well. We had a couple of run-ins that just gave us the feedback we were really after. But when you collated all that feedback, the feedback was really simple. We don't want to be a guinea pig. We want to have a product that works. So when it works, let us know. And absolutely, this, this process is epic. It's everything we want. It, solves our, it actually solves our business and our team and our company and our revenue more so than anything else because our people are our team, right? And we looked at this and we're like, great. We've got confirmation, not just from us. We've got confirmation now from these other high-ranking CMOs and uh, business leaders through New York, a city that I have no experience from in Perth. I landed there for the first time <laughs> cold. Um, and just to watch that energy, especially from New York, we were like, right, well, we're going to take that and build it because we know this. How we get it to be that product that we're going to be able to put in their hands and actually make that happen? We went back to Perth because, again, it's an expensive city being in New York. I, I'm a family man. I've got four children now. So <laughs> the idea of raising them in New York is basically <laughs> putting zeros that I don't have into, uh, into bank accounts and try <laughs> to do the same time. So we wound up doing a lot of it from Perth. Um, again, the family, the ability to hire family, friends, and have a look at how to do it all, and just keep our costs low while we actually de-risk the business and build the technology from a, you know, again, we're we're edging up from a de-risking scenario. The goal is not to build something flashy and fast that people go, oh, it worked, crap. We actually took it a different way. We know the business. We know this industry is going to be here forever. We know this is going to operate. How do we just de-risk it to the point where there's no risk anymore and we find the niche? And it's and really what does de-risk mean? De-risk means can we, just, just from, from all elements and all sides, can we actually do this, yes or no? And we, and we go through experiment after experiment and iteration after iteration. What's the easiest way to get people to make a video? And how can we de-risk the process with someone from a personal front, feeling comfortable to put themselves on the film? How can we share video content? Again, when we go back, video was still very expensive to serve and distribute across the internet when we go back. How can we distribute video at um, fractions of the cost of everyone else across the internet? There's a real cost for hosting and serving. How can we actually achieve this? From a communications perspective, how can we help people communicate and actually achieve that from, from our databases to our front-end interfaces? Uh, <laughs> everything from a technical standpoint had a purpose we were used, set out to achieve with it and the tools and code we could write to actually do that. And just how can we actually get it there in a way that it works, uh, works reliably and costs us and gives us a yeah. cost advantage.
What is your most profitable failure? Definitely Argon, 100%. Argon Technology was an industrial robotics company for me. Yeah. We, I came through industrial robotics at university. It was a gamble when I did it, but I saw the future being there and chose to go that way. So I finished my degree and thesis end of 2001, mid 2002. I was really cool, interested in space planes and advanced physics. And we were actually looking at electrohydrodynamics and basically fuelless propellants and things of that nature for, from an energy perspective. And yeah, very passionate on that, but I couldn't see that occurring without the money to drive something to actually achieve it. So had to fight, had to get more practical, had to come down to something that would actually work. Um, and 2000 and end of 2004, it was like when I kicked off Argon, we went in and we just saw a trend at that stage where um, car plant robotics and industrial robotics was coming down in its cost dramatically. Our processing power and our ability to, to basically do the collaboration, the software component was increasing exponentially. And we had a crossover. With- how, how did you see that? You say that very nonchalantly. How did you know that the cost of car plant robotics was going down and software observing was the, going observing up. the trends of um, of items and actual sales prices, um, observing their technology enhancements and so going. So how so how you that, inferred it? You inferred it from like the price of cars. And no, no, far from it. So we're talking ABD, Motorman. Okay, so from within the industry, you notice these trends. Exactly. Okay, I'm just thinking because a lot of people think like, how do they find the business idea? And that is one way you're in an industry, you can potentially spot trends like that that others won't spot. I'll quote an awesome meme of a cowboy riding a rabbit, right? Sometimes you just got to go deep down that rabbit hole and really nut it out, right? The deeper your knowledge on a topic, the better your ability to actually decipher what your purpose is in obtaining that knowledge. We had that background in robotics. So yeah, we knew everything about it. There was a basically deep knowledge, I think would be the simple five-year-old version of Dolly. So yes, you you pick them up on a consumer trend and you look at that consumer trend with your intent. And then to qualify and de-risk that intent, you've got to dive deep and actually find out if it's get down to your root cause analysis and your fundamentals. Um, Does it stack up? And if it stacks up, then it warrants you putting the more time into it. But sometimes you meet roadblocks and obviously it's way better to have said, I spent, you know, a month going really deep on all of this and find out this doesn't make it work. Then barrel down the line of spending $100,000 in a year or two and being in the same position, right? Yeah, yeah. Going deep and finding something doesn't work is the cost of innovation, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you found this trend and then how did Argon grow and blossom and explode? <laughs> I'll go back to how bad I was at sales. <laughs> <laughs> took me about three and a half years to really crack the uh, industrial robotics industrial automation process engineering consulting um took me to just about the complete edge of failure on that one i think would be a simple way to put it but we did then have it dialed in and i think that was fundamentally my fault i went in there approaching to be one of the biggest engineering firms build it and they will come type of approach trying to get them to come as fast as we could get them we became the first iso certified industrial robotics company in australia you know we hit a lot of real metrics like this but we were still trickling over um, hundreds of thousands to a million dollar worth of revenue. We were never actually at that point. Um, I had some big uh, R&D initiatives, which uh, we actually termed at the time was our artificial intelligence team. 
Um, so we were running a lot of this alongside. So all the surplus that we were doing outside our roles was going into that. That now actually is basically Internet of Things, by the way, as well. So um, that that's really, really cool when you watch these things. So we're talking 2005, six that we're really heavily into all of this. Um, we traveled it all the way through. We got to the point where the GFC is something that we experienced in that business, which caused us to, to shape and change everything. Um, we What's the GFC? A global financial crisis. So this is oh, okay. circa 2008, 2009. Right. Um, we were set to do massive. That Our business was, had just hit that point where we were scaling and blowing up and exploding. Uh, and that hit us. Um, hit us so bad that we were on track and expected to do, I think it was 100 and just over $100 million in revenue that year. So this is 2009. It, hit, it was 2008. It hit our industries in 2009. But we were on track to 100 million. We did four and a half, I think it was in total that year. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> But, but, yeah. but yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> to, to, I hope you hadn't put any um, put any money down on any houses or any private islands anywhere. <laughs> oh, well, every, everything goes back into the business completely. Like we were running, um, we were growing, we were in that growth phase. We were absolutely going, and unfortunately, um, that was the market. Like we were late stage on so much yeah. tender work that in our pipelines, in the way we ran it, that was all coming in this year. There was no question. And then it was just yeah. delay. It was, hang on, we're going to push it to the next board meeting. It was, oh, that one's on pause and hold for six months minimum while we assess what's going on here. Um, it, it was across the industry. It was very painful, right? So, Yeah, and that's the issue with long-term sales cycles, right? 100%. If it takes two years, then you, you, there's nothing you can do in the short term if something like that happens. Either, either find another product that you sell quickly or just make sure that you've, got your pipeline full so that they come to manifest. And mm. so, yeah, so that happened. We were running a venture portfolio group at the, alongside that up until that point. And we had about 50 ventures under underway at that stage and they were smaller businesses. Um, some of them not much more than weekends into with a couple of smart people that we thought could go somewhere. Others we had a couple of hundred thousand dollars invested in already. That were small businesses that were set to frame up and shape up the future of the markets we were pushing into. Um, we had to collapse them all, obviously, 2009. That was, you know, we, we, we had to collapse the company essentially down to bare basics. And what we did in that is we, we dropped all, all non-essential work, all portfolio companies and everything we had dropped down to two businesses. And we ran with two businesses and we gave them a death match, which um, some of these is just language, but it was basically which one, let's put a month into each of these and find out the best one and then we'll, we'll focus on that. Um, so we did that. And the bit that came out of that was an industrial collaborative robotic fusion system. It's actually how they test iron ore to see whether there's iron ore there or it's just red dirt, to put it in simple words. There was two, three other competitors in the world and we were able to turn out these facilities that our competitors couldn't, um, couldn't turn on for the, you know, well, their average turn on was about eight to $20 million. Um, our turn on price was about 500 to $900,000. So we had this major cost advantage in, in these plants, but it was really new tech. It was really, you know, it was, it was a legitimate do-it-self laboratory um, that people would collaborate with to actually get the end result. And it was amazing. Um, the partner we had wanted us to sell those systems. I didn't agree with him because I, did, I saw us being able to operate them more effectively. Uh, the market to operate them effectively was very hard. And we were lucky in a situation to cut to the short chase of it that, um, Andrew Forrest, one of, um, you know, runs Fortescue, one of the big companies, it's an iron ore company in Australia, um, gave us the opportunity if our 
results were as good as the um, the other players, then he would give us the work. And for us, to be honest, makes an entrepreneur like me cry when someone believes in you and gives you a shot like that. It's just, you know, it's, it's everything you, you know, at that stage worked almost 10 years of my life towards. Um, we had that and that, that was tremendous. So you say, where, why does this story go so south so fast? Because <laughs> that, that business alone was, uh, that trajectory was a billion dollar business for us over a period of the next eight years in, in the way that worked once we, we ticked that off. Right as it was all cranking up though, we hit October, 2012 and the US dollar dropped. And this is um, like, I can only account it to force majeure. I, I was not tracking financial markets. I had no idea that was going to occur at that stage. And the US dollar dropped about 10 or 15 cents for, I think it was two weeks or something in total there. And we ran out of cash flow. This is the horrible in part that- of it was, I took my last 200 grand, I had cash and I paid payroll and this got announced and we were in a situation where we're all, we really are going to run insolvent here. The dollar drop put the iron ore companies in a sticky situation, which then put you in a sticky situation. I would right? flee on the back of a dog um, or the flea on the back. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we had something amazing that was a big business in its own right, pipelined all our tech and gave us the opportunity to take it all. But we were completely at the mercy of, of our ability to do that. And, it extended past our means to run six months. Um, you know, we, we could get about three months, but there was no hope we could operate it for six. And mm. um, as we fleshed that out and wrapped that out, it was unfortunately one of those areas where I had to put the company into administration and lost it all. And yeah, that's <laughs> that. that uh, I think that must have hurt. I think we were carrying a business on the paper books about 65-ish million, I think it was on that at that stage of the company where we were at. But it was running in management. We were ready to go and it, it was all over just like that. I, um, I remember signing the, uh, signing the administration papers and then going and presenting in Darling Harbour in Sydney in front of heads of government on the future of work, funnily enough, coincidentally to where I am right now. That's, that's, that must have been awful. What was your headspace like at that point? And coming back to the question, what was your most profitable failure? What have you learned from that? And the whole experience, like your mentality technical things or planning for changes in markets yeah. what did you learn that you're going to now use at use a verb to grow the business you've got to be able to be super logical and you've got to be able to be super emotional and you've got to be able to flip between the two and give the two the time it takes to do their process from analyzing an opportunity or a business or a, or a future that we want to commit into We've got to be able, usually it's excitement. It's like, oh, this is really cool. I'd love to, or man, I could see everyone doing this or some version of if you're a future seer and you're a creator, getting into an opportunity usually has some element of emotional excitement or um, I know this is going to happen. Once you get that emotion in, we've got to be able to get rid of that emotion and go into the logical component of it. And then we've got to be able to get deep, deeply technical and go, cool, well, if I'm to be the one that does this, how do I map this out? How do I build this out? What bits need to come together? You need to be able to plan it out and map it out. And that's not just, oh, it's exciting. These things routinely are never a weekend or a three-month startup and a gig. It's something that usually you do have to dive down into the bowels of the subject space and really go, right, can I? And then the question on top of, can I attract the people and the talent with the time necessary to fulfill and to implement and to actually take that journey to fruition. There are leaps of faith. There always are, but biggest rule of thumb, the more you can understand the path ahead, the better you can plan for it and the better you can make a better shot call. Now, what happens, and this is the proper lesson, when you go deep on something, 
you can lose your emotion and excitement for the product because you start to go, oh man, I might have to do this for three years or five years and I'll be X, Y, Z. Oh, that's not as cool as just rolling with a Rolex, <laughs> you know, or, so, or whatever the vision of, you know, you might have had. Um, you've got to, once done the technical, you've got to be able to go and actually get emotional about it again and go, right, no, this is really worth my time. This is, this is so cool. And so the lesson for me is if, you can, if you're excited about seeing something manifest in the future and believe it's something that you can and should commit to, can you map it out, plan about it, and then come back to the same thing and be just as excited, if not more? And if you can be excited, then, then it's got the metrics of the chance to actually see its light of day. That is fascinating. I've never heard someone say that, but that is so true because you always hear people like when they, they get their idea, they're like, I've got this idea, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And then they either drop off at the stage of going deep because they're like, oh, this is going to take 10 years. I'll sack it off. But I've never considered the fact that you need to push through that and then get back to that first like child's mindset when you first saw it. Absolutely. I think it's easier said than done to keep pushing on despite losing the emotional feeling of it. When, it's, when you realize it's hard, how do you think about pushing through that? Is it because of your vision of what's going to be in the future? Is that what powers you? What drives you through that hard, technical, deep dive? Something big that's like, well, I, I, I committed to something when I was 16 years old that I wanted to see come to fruition. And I've had that commitment. I'm a pretty committed person in the context of that. Um, straight up, there's always lots of tears in a pillow when, when sometimes you do, you hit a roadblock. There's no path forward here, right? Um, <laughs> those, those moments which I think every entrepreneur at some point or business owner is and can't make payroll, haven't done this, there's no solution, can't, you know, it really does, man. Like more tears are shed by, I think, entrepreneurs trying to do something that they think is worthwhile um, than, than just about anything under the sun because you get to these moments. They're real moments. Um, a good night's sleep, some actual sleep back in the bank, some food usually helps, you know, brighter eyes and greener pastures for better assessments the next morning. So sometimes it's about acknowledging that process. Um, the rest of it is like for verb here, it's just compelling, right? The world is going such the wrong way. So many young people don't understand who they are and they're worried about themselves. They're too afraid to say hello to people. They're not being built up. They haven't been built into the person they're capable of being. And hugely it's because we're being told to try to chat GPT's taking all those jobs anyway. Right, that was just be like graphics calculators came out when we were. Then there was, you know, Wolfram Alpha and Google and all, all these tools have come out. Generalized knowledge is going to be gone for a generation. If they don't have something that, you know, the intent of the person is going to be the most prevailing component of, of what future of work. Why is that person going to be the best person to, to solve this problem? That area and that element for me, I see as being a huge part of this future and how do you get people in a great position where they can solve a problem? Well, they've got to be comfortable with who they are and clear and confident on what, where they're going and what they're set to do. And I just see, I see so much ability for us to be able to bring in, provide that for people. Um, Newsverb is literally just, it, it, it's my extremely stupidly ambitious gamble that I might be able to help people be the best version of themselves. It's fascinating how you just said that about so AI has scared a lot of people and people are thinking what's going to happen as a result. But, and I've been thinking about this a lot in recent weeks and it's one of the questions I was going to ask you. But I really like that idea that it strips away the need for generalized knowledge 
And the last thing that people have is their intent, purpose, and passion, and natural drive to get something done. So how do you see AI impacts in the future work? Like, What does that actually look like? Well, going into industrial collaborative robotics, where we were, we hit this element in that industry very hard, very early on, because everyone's like, oh, the robot's going to take our jobs. Oh, you know, and you were dealt with a lot of people that in, in their mind, they, I'm going to use terrible analogies, but they slung a hammer or wielded a, a welding torch, right? So they're like, oh, this thing can do it faster, better than me. doesn't need brakes. It just needs a power plug. And, you know, what am I ever going to do? Well, it's not actually always the case. Um, what it does is clear those people up for better roles or for cleaner, safer roles and a transition the workforce. In an economy where the population keeps growing, that quality of life keeps improving and we keep on the trajectory largely your life has experienced, then we always need more people. Like that, we need so many more people. It's not funny. People, people are in so short supply. It's crazy. What we need those people to be doing is to be actually effective and efficient. So most of these tools, ChatGPT included, are, are huge hyper-efficiency tools. And it's transitioned from mechanical work that we were doing with robotics um, decades ago to these days to the, the literal office-based clerk, clergy-type work. What's the spread on passion fruits in Byron Bay? How much money can be made on, on this many acres if I, you know, simple questions from a farming analogy right the way up to how do I write the best LinkedIn post to get an interest of this target demographic, um, you know, in South Houston, <laughs> right? This tool's come in and, and given us answers where normally we'd find, have to find a person. We'd have to find that person that's qualified. We'd then have to specify to that person and we'd then have to run through an iteration or two to get to a those processes used to take weeks, if not months. Now, now it's done in under five minutes, right? It's just time saving. And all these tools come down yeah. to active efficiency, time saving. I don't see it being there. I see the future of work still having a lot of the roles we do have now. I see some people being much more efficient and higher paid as a result of moving to understand how to use this tool. I see the baseline moving very likely. So there's a few threads on the chat and, and AI and I'll, touch briefly on the wokeness because there's a few things there that can really affect its trajectory and how it goes. But as an actual work... Like what? Well, if they let it be the tool it is in the general AI sense and that the results are given back by the person asking it and it's not filtered, then it becomes a really useful tool. If they start filtering results very heavily and they stop allowing the actual answers to come through to the people at the end user... As it goes into the workplace, that can actually have impact into, you know, I'm a massive believer in information is information. And, I, and that's, yeah. that's where I'll put it. Um, I'd like to have the information, good or bad, and then make my choice. I don't need to have a softened generic or, or adjusted version of information so that I can hear something that I think I might want to hear. If it's bad, it's bad. Cool. Because we're going to accept that as our new reality. And then we're going to make a plan to move forward, given the information we've got. You know, not, oh, looks like it could be a big downturn coming up in, in three months' time because this, that, and the other. It's like, no, there's a very likely to be a big downturn coming in three months' time. We need a plan for what happens if production drops by 60%, right? Okay, yeah. Clear. It's kind of the way that Twitter were, Twitter were hiding certain types of tweets. You prefer a world where the information is all there and then people can make their own decisions. 100%. And yeah. And, and, and in that world, I believe we should make better people and we should help people become the better versions of themselves where they can more objectively assess information and make the choices relevant to where they go. 
because uh, when, when we control and we cap these things, the fun stuff doesn't happen. Like the chat GPTs and these things, they don't happen because a big corporate innovated in their core. They happen because someone right out here went, you know what, maybe I could, <laughs> right? And, and, and to end at some, of, some of the problems with chat, if we limit these answers and we drill it down into here, then all of a sudden we actually lose all this stuff that could be really cool that happens because they have the filtering layer on the top of it assessing the response that would come. It's like, build me the best antenna for receiving um, this many megahertz signal um, in deep forest located here, right? That's, that, that, that's an answer that someone has to solve right now. Um, it's not an answer you need filtered through some language layer that removes or strips the data out of it. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Now, I know that's it a makes technical, sense. not a personal, and there's many threads to it. So without getting into some of those other ones that are much more controversial, information is information. And I think as people, if we get given better information, we can make better choices. And that's similar to like the use verb thing. It's just speeding up job application and the employers. Like it's just making that process more efficient. 100%. Yeah. And that, that, that tool is going to be something that does transform the future of work. It's, it's going to be incredible. So um, Yeah. I, do you use it in your day-to-day? -day? I have it open. I've started actually querying it, which is really interesting. Um, we, we've bought, we've paid, we support it with a premium couple of subscriptions at the company. Um, we have started challenging from technical all the way to um, the marketing and social to actually query it, to have a look. So they're playing it off side-by-sides in a lot of these to see what the actual answers come back. So... We are using it because the feedback, sometimes we are using the results from that. Other times it's still ourselves, ourselves doing it. So it, we're, we're in a phase of what I would call a side-by-siding right now. So, um, okay. We, and not, what sort of things are you using it for? Like what sort of things are you testing it for? Um, we're testing it for how it would write code and analyzing code. So um, up uploading one of the JS files, having a look at what it actually, you know, how, how it might clean it up um, to write. How's it doing? Oh, been pretty impressive. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I must admit, I, from, from the deep level I was, I've been building our product and I took my eye off um, AI until ChatGPT3 got released um, and that actually came out with the, the game change it did. Um, caught me side by side and it was one of those areas. We, when we parked AI in 2017, I didn't think we would see anything fruitful or the data sets or the capacity to handle the data sets for at least three to five years. Right, and we parked it. It's taken that length of time. When ChatGPT three came out, I was like, "Oh, it'll be another one of these machine learning algorithms," and someone's just lossied it up and done a, you know, done a startup. I actually, totally. Um, I was listening to ChatGPT three when I first heard it, and I'm paraphrasing. You know, my first week of of, of avoiding that information because I didn't want to get distracted by something that could be cool again, but actually didn't have, you know, the the legs underneath it. Um, then I found out it was OpenAI and I found out it was Sam Altman and I was like, oh, holy, holy God. And we, and we jumped in and had a bit of a look at it. And then I realized, hang on, this is five years later <laughs> than where we were looking at it. And my God. You need to like, set a reminder next time. Holy gosh. Like, yeah, honestly, that was where it happened for us. It was like, wow, really, really is it? This really is operating at that general AI level of capable to interpret and, and respond. And so there's there's here's, here's a question that I've been thinking about, and maybe you can help as a technical person. Did you hear the new Drake song that came from an AI no. algorithm? Sorry, Might not okay. Be that cool. So you know who Drake is, right? Yes. 
Yeah, okay. So they it's just done a song. It sounds just like him, just his tone of voice, completely new. Got all the instrumentals. It sounds perfect. People love the song. It's got millions of downloads. In that world, every artist becomes like a feeder for an algorithm, which can basically fill in the gaps between all of the songs they have and all the songs they possibly could have with the same like feeling or vibe or Drake might change his sound and make a new album in two years time. Could the AI as it stands today do that for him? Does that question make sense? In two years time, could the AI make his songs for him? Is, is it amalgamated? Is all it's capable of right now? And I say, all it's still very powerful, but is it amalgamating the information we currently have and filling in the gaps? Or is it also able to start giving us the, the next steps of information? Because it doesn't have any data about future. Music, music, it only goes to the past. Music in particular, I think, is one of those areas that I would be really worried about if I was a, um, an artist. And entertainment is different. Music in particular. I mean, most music, most hit musics are made up of four chords. Right, there's actual real specific algorithms when you go to emotional or emotive change. I think there would be substantial data in the general realm that an AI model can be easily trained on that's relevant to that. So can a, can a general AI oriented around music solve music that will hit the billboards? And Absolutely. Right? I, I think that's something that that, the, that technology will move to do for sure. Now, the presentation, the sale and the marketing of that, as in like actually to get that domineering gap, I wouldn't be surprised 100% if future um, Drakes of the world and, you know, Zeds and all the rest of them that are in that DJ type, you know, modern music space, that, that that's going to be taken over. Um, that they, they will be using a tool or they will be, they'll be a figureheading of that tool. I can't see how that probably doesn't occur, to be fair. So here plays into the future of work a bit. Hmm. The tool gets used by people, but you still need the sales. You still need someone and expand this to any domain you still need the sales you still need the marketing you still need the human interactions drake still needs to go to concerts to get people to like love him and buy into his story so do you think things like sales marketing and that human layer that's the thing that is still sort of safe? so how did you want to go because with synth ai and a whole bunch of these sorts of things that layer even there gets a bit scary right we go future on a lot of the plans we originally had. Our research we've been doing, which largely formed between the Internet of Things at the moment, but links into AI. We, we called it AIT. It was our AIT program. Um, it was Artificial Intelligence Team. And we had that for a reason because we broke that up into different personas. And why did we break it up into different personas? Because the idea of one um, all-knowing AI god of sorts that could do everything and change everything, it, it's actually... A relatability index that that doesn't work so well whereas if you have a bunch of things and you go to for this you go to for that you go to for this um as a human interface i think that's a real solution to a human interface problem for achieving this now as you get more into these tools the, the future is foreseeable where look I, I think you'll find all the concerns about ai in general are very grounded right how far do you take this out you take this out two years i i think we're um if you determine a moment of singularity, I, I'm very unlikely that that moment has come. Um, you take this out 10 years, I think we're probably in the best chance 20 years before that moment of singularity might occur. Like, I'll, I'll be... I'm sorry, 
Think about AI can now do everything and take over and be in charge of its own right and actually be able to solve these little problems. So you can go something and go, hey, I want to dominate the music industry in 2025, right? I don't think a general AI prompt to something like that will be able to dominate the music industry in 2025, even with good interfaces. It will still need humans to interface to dominate the music industry in 2025. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Music industry in 2025 and 10 bullet points. It'll pump that out. Expand bullet point one. It'll plan out, you know, write a job description for a person who should deliver or write the tasks for this. You could map that out right as of right now, but it'll still need people to plug the holes and take those next. Okay. Time, right? Yeah. As we get further and further, there's tools that will replace those people. But I think we'll find those, those enhance those people as opposed to replace them. So the task becomes too big. Um, Tim Ferriss is a really fascinating fella in the way he approaches a lot of this as well. I have a lot of time for his extremely um, literal technical mindset for building processes and tasks and being able to- Yeah, 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 it's amazing. You you approach with a mentality of like him, someone like him would be a weapon with AI. In that mindset, that there's potential for a weapon of personality. The combat to a lot of that, which will will come is the, the deeply personable people. Right, because there's always going to be comments done by people shaking hands and mowing lawns and serving coffees, um, answering, litigating in court. Um, best litigation paper written by a chat GPT AI still needs to be presented by someone in the actual courthouse. Right? Yeah. Um, bedside manner with medicine. The, a lot of the models I've seen the med- medical area they're they're on point and more accurate than doctors. However, um, reading you've got cancer and having someone actually say, "All right." here's what this means are two different things and you'll never get that bed. The bit that's missing from an AI in that persona, which is kind of similar to the music industry is it's the human connection. When someone's the empathy factor, empathy's like, I'm not sure that empathy is ever going to quite connect and be the same with robotics. I don't, I don't quite see how that is there. There's a lot more technology to us as humans at that next layer that um, the technologists and that, of the day love to just pretend doesn't exist and we try to abstract away from it we just don't understand it it's still magic you know in terms of, of reality of it we don't operate in a deep enough understanding of electromagnetics and um, high frequency um, energy that is not common knowledge for anyone um, i find that this stuff can become more common knowledge as we get more advanced tools that allow us to model and understand it however we just yeah at the moment that's a weakness yeah, that's so interesting to hear you say all this stuff. We're talking about the future of work and AI. You've got four kids. What sort of things are you going to be saying to them about their careers and their life? What is What are you going to say Man, to them about that? What a, what a nail on the head question. Like, seriously, um, this is the question, right? Because what's happened as a result of all of this, the schooling system is now disrupted, right? Um, the, co- the spanner that they threw in the, the spokes of the wheel of life as we know it was COVID, right? When they went through all of this, and as we've got here, the shutdowns that have occurred, the shutdowns have perfect stormed with ChatGPT being released and where technology is actually advanced to that. I don't know how you can look at schooling these days and sit there and go, the old model works. Like the old model had problems when I came through it. It was why the first thing when I came out of school was like, this thing needs revolutionizing and we need to, you know, we need to change this. Well, I was sitting at school for eight hours a day learning at best 30 minutes worth of actual useful content. How does that scale? 
perfect example. I chose not to do calculus in year 12 because I didn't want to do engineering when I graduated. Funny thing was, as it all came around, when I did my choices, I chose engineering and then needed to do calculus. I had to do year 12 calculus in three weeks as a bridging course. So for me, it's like, hang on a second. If my year of work was actually only meant to be three weeks of work, why on earth was I sitting in that classroom for that length of time? And I couldn't agree more. Everything I've ever done has been like a, a max a week of like cramming, which is not healthy. And, and, and this is a, so, so it, it, it does delineate because there's the doers and, and, and those people that will rote learn. So they, they will learn a mathematics formula by doing a hundred example questions. And then there's the thinkers or the creators and they will learn the equation they'll learn the edge cases and they'll do three or five to just see how it applies of each of those variants. And then they'll park that knowledge. And as long as they revisit it, we won't get into how you remember things, but there's two different personas and I'm definitely the later. So I, I just want to know why and I want to know how, and, and then I want to know when it breaks or when it's not applicable and why it works that way. And then from that point, I'm like, cool, let's measure this and test this a few times. So I've got personal experience. And then from that point on, it's like, does this have any future in my life? Where does it get applied? And then I, once I've got that knowledge, I can wrap that research and I can park that now because I've done it once before. And this is so relatable to where we're going because exposure and experience is important, but what is exposure and experience? And um, take calculus. I don't remember most of the basics of that these days. If you were to call me on the spot here right now, I would look like an absolute noob and a dweeb. And if I got myself in that tongue twist of something where we were trying to actually explain it, I'd probably have a crack and get it all wrong, right? And dive in, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, this, of course. I'll get into it. And then like, oh, actually, that's not right. Um, but it, it's not right because I'm not using it of day course. in, day out. So my, my knowledge is, is, is watered down of that right now. However, if you give me a problem that I've got to solve that requires that, I know where to look. I know how to research it. I've experienced it before. So I'm going to dive in there and pick up the fact that, no, there was edge cases here. I might not remember them all perfectly, from my cognitive spot, but I'll know exactly what I'm looking for and I'll be much better placed to, to solve that problem in, in time, right? So give, it, give me that problem in a day to go away and actually get it. I'll come back with a really good answer because I'll know where to solve it, how to solve it. And, and I'm much better than someone who's never done that before. You know, they'll have to come up and, you know, to quote the three weeks, they've at least got to do that three weeks of learning to get the basics of it all to, to kick into that next area. Because they have to learn what they don't know which is harder to learn what you know you don't know exactly you don't know what you don't know i think you said it right there right so you don't even know how to solve a problem like that because you've not been exposed to it before in hum human education and development there's this huge requirement for generalized exposure experience and knowledge right um massive believer in the more the more you know the more you can solve and do um and you asked me what the, the most valuable um, lessons I've learned earlier and we were talking about that ability to be emotionally excited about something that you think is worthwhile and then diving deep on the technicality. Um, not a business plan. And this isn't what we're talking about with these generic lickety splits business plans. This is like actually knowing the nuts and bolts of what you're going to do and personifying yeah, yeah. yourself as the person to do it, right? Yeah. That can't be really written on paper. That's a distinctly human process, right? And then getting excited about it. The bit yeah. is to go deep on that and they even uncover that. It's like, it's the generalized layer and knowledge at the top of that. Um, it's really funny, like YouTube and these things have been tools that um, I've, I've seen a few, a few people put posts up recently where it's like, 
had gone, this is an amazing, like things I didn't know yesterday that I've learned today and I've run through. I was like, I didn't learn that from school. I learned that from YouTube. <laughs> it's actually very true. The generalized knowledge layer um, is coming through. There's tools that are actually filling these voids and gaps right now. Um, but as youth, we're talking two things out of school. It's actually babysitting and daycare. So at a layer, it's taking children out of, off parents so that the parents can get on with what they're doing rather than just bringing them up. And it's giving them generalized knowledge. I think the process that the generalized knowledge is occurring is ultra inefficient. I think believe that efficiency can be tremendously improved. Um, and the daycare and the childcare, well, that's something that I, th I do believe is needed. There's always been some form of community from all uh, societies that I've been able to track down. Like how it all comes together, that I think there's a big change in the way. There's a massive trend um, we, we saw in Perth when we got into it and we've, we've definitely observed over here since being in Texas. Homeschooling being, um, you know, is in a renaissance of sorts right now uh, because there's a lot of people looking at the same thing. Well, hang on, what, what are my children being taught? What are they learning? How does this actually map out to the future that we hope for them? Um, are they going to get there faster by going and being away from me for, you know, over here in America, about eight to nine hours a day? Or are they going to get there faster by, um, by doing something else? And there's a lot of people believing these days that they can go somewhere else. There's, there's a different process, but I don't think anyone's actually nailed that into it. I did hear Elon started his own school a yeah. while ago for his children. So again, there's an acknowledgement from that whatever he's doing. Well, I don't, it wasn't a homeschool. He actually went into, he, he created his, oh, okay. his own private school, I think. And that was because, again, he acknowledged the weakness right. of the private schools and that actually addressing the technical and the, where technology yeah. was going. And he wanted his children to be best prepped for the mm. future he sees ahead. Um, I agree. I agree the knowledge transfer is super inefficient as it stands, but I don't agree that maximizing knowledge transfer efficiency is the right solution because... A big part of what you learn from school is 100%. social connection. Um, and I can expand on that, but that's essentially it. And like how to be nice to people, how to tell stories and all of these skills, going back to what we were saying earlier, are the, they're the human interface layer that is still valuable. 100%. And always and will this be. Is where the, so the online schooling and these things, I don't know if that really works. Ollie, you said it one. You've got to be bullied to, um, you know, and sometimes you've got to bully to realize exactly where the line sits. Right. There's nothing more dangerous than a young man who has been bullied his whole life and never, you know, thrown a punch or really had a punch because they got to be adults that don't recognize what happens when you get punched and you will never get yeah, yeah. that social interaction and those social skills to handle scenarios like that through a video camera. It just, it's not possible. You get a very unbalanced human, unfortunately, I believe at the end of that, you need that interaction and yeah, how to achieve that. I'm not that, that that's the big part of it. That's where the schooling system or sports, I'm not sure there'll be. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of disruption and change in that. Area yeah. To come. Yeah. Okay. So taking off your business hat, cause you straight away then went into problems <laughs> with schooling coming back to the question. Um, what, what, what traits they need to have, what do they need to learn about what technologies they need to know? What, or do they pursue art? Do they learn people skills? What do they do? Sorry, I'm very bad. I'm, I'm word vomiting as I'm thinking with you, Ollie. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Bits that are important for my children that I focus on. The understanding of money and commerce. The big things and the threads that I focus on there. They're all young. So as, as young children, my children, are the, the focus on them to understand how to hold themselves and navigate social interactions, 
how to be intentional, how to shake hands, look eyes, how to be young men for the young men, how to be courteous and polite and strong as young women. This is, I've got two boys and two girls. Um, their ability to social interact, their ability to make friends, to, to build a rapport with the person that they meet that understands the integrity and intent that they stand there as a human is huge. Um, 11 year old boy right now, of course, he's at that age where he doesn't want to quite look eyes because, you know, it's learning who he actually is. The ability to let him know that I'm actually here for him. Um, these are the most important social skills we're building with them. When it comes to technical skills that we're looking at related to it all, I was never taught, I was always interested in e-commerce, but interested like you are in a monopoly game, like something that has no relevance at all to life. Uh, I've been trying to weed into them different experiences and exposures of, of actual business and why that, and I'll use the broader term commerce because it's an exchange for this for that, right? And understanding how those interactions work between people and how they work between people at scale. A lot of the stories are all oriented around that because at the end of the day, that's what they're in the schooling system for is to make themselves someone that can provide for themselves in the future that they're, you know, that they're going to be living in. So outside ability to be a good human, to stand up straight to do that and ability to um, stand with integrity and protect themselves as necessary for the environment that they find themselves landing in and the ability for them to understand how to provide for themselves and others as they actually get there. These are the core lessons that I value above everything else. Um, for me in my generation, my father, it was university. I was finishing one of the core degrees at university, be that medical, legal, um, engineering, um, my choice was engineering out of those because I liked building stuff like the technology angle way more than to quote dealing with kids with snotty noses and giving them antibiotics, which is very crude, but <laughs> you know, it was, it was the line I thought I'd have more, um, more interested in my future. Um, my children, I don't see those same degrees as being, um, being anywhere near as relevant. Um, I see more, right, how do, how, how do they navigate and how do they provide for themselves and create value? And if I can get them to the point where they understand the basic mechanics of value exchange, then they're going to be best placed no matter what happens in the future to actually, that may be knowledge, that may be a, that may be a degree of, of sorts. It may be, um, you know, tertiary education, secondary education. It may be becoming a YouTube star, but understanding the mechanics of what you're doing on YouTube so it's a business not you like making videos and all oh, you luckily blew up. No, I'm, you're going to be a great dad. Well, you, you must be a great dad. This is amazing. Yeah, I love that. One of the reasons I started this podcast is because I always, similar to that sort of story about commerce, I always wanted to be successful as long as I, since I was young. I always wanted to start the business. No one in my environment was into business. No one was an entrepreneur. I went through the schooling system that we're talking about where that's not anywhere yep. near the curriculum. And over years and years, I just got further away from where my heart wanted me to be. And that just culminated at uni. And I was really unhappy with where I was, etc. One day my friend told me to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I read it. And I understood the difference between someone who invests money in assets and someone who spends money on liabilities, which is super simple. It felt like a light bulb had gone off, a curtain had been lifted. And ever since then, I've just changed what I read, changed what I learned about my intentions in the world have changed. So my question to you is along that topic of curtains being raised, you've, you're several steps ahead of that now. You're operating at high levels of business. I'm sure you've met lots of very influential and successful people. What is a moment in your life 
where you feel a curtain has been raised and you've been like, oh shit, this is what people are doing back here. How did I not know about this sooner? I am um, really funny. Uh, I would say I had an aha moment reading that book as well, if I'm to be very honest. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, Rocky Osaki, shout out. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, shout out. I, um, That's amazing. I knew how to make things and I came from not, not too similar background to, to yourself, I think, in general, in, in, in my upbringing, right? Um, university, school, intelligent, here's how things work, basic value trades. Under, uh, largely, the bigger focus was on trading time for money, right? So I think that's the schooling system in general, right? The asset stuff is kept out of that. Um, good friends and exposure. I was meant to go to, through private school, but I actually had a that's a different story. I really wanted to go to the public school, which was really close to my home where all my friends were going and, um, yeah, and argued black and blue and swung that one with my dad. So <laughs> I kind of had, uh, had a dichotomy of, dichotomy of friends in, in an upbringing there. But why Robert Kiyosaki was so, so thing was that the, the epiphany that I had around that book, which I, you, you may completely be on the same page with us as well, Ollie, was time is an asset as well. And what, what I, I think a lot of the people I read that book with and I got in, they were like, oh, but I've only got three grand or 20 grand or something to invest. It's like, what could, and they started looking at property and how they could, they quickly dove into property. And it's like, me, the epiphany was, my time is an investment. Where am I investing myself, right? Where's my attention flowing? Where am I going? And you went into, you, you changed everything about books you read. You changed everything about, you know, the information. This is exactly it. For me, I came across that book. Um, the epiphany wasn't early in my life. It was actually middle tier in my life. It was around the same time I was really struggling to sell in this amazing industrial collaborative robotics solution that could change the world. <laughs> you know, I was, I was out there blue-eyed, bushy-tailed, um, you know, quick as a tack, really could do these things, trying to convince people that had been ripped off by someone who came from international or came from the East Coast. Um, and had put 400 grand or $1.5 million into some system uh, not more than three years ago that was now currently under a tarp hold and not working. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you can. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what the last guy. Trust me, exactly trust what me. The last guy told yeah. us, beep off. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, what, what am I like, what am I not getting here? I, like, I, I, again, it, it's a me problem, not a them problem, right? And I think early on, a lot of people fail. It's like, oh, well, they're shit. They didn't understand. You know, they, they go down. It's, it's always an external problem. And for me, it was always, an in, it was always the internal problems. Like, what have I done? What have I done wrong here? How could have I handled this differently? When you speak with someone, you watch when someone zones out, you watch when someone zones in, right? We pick up on these non-visual, non-verbal clues routinely. It's like, what triggered that? So... The Robert Kiyosaki stuff really, really came in because I started thinking about every one of those things as investments. I started to really understand that different mindset. Um, it led into a lot more. And for me in particular, it was sales. I, I really had to acknowledge I was, I was very weak in my ability to communicate value. I was very weak in my ability to identify actual pain and actual um, requirement for solutions. So my, my filtering, I would go in there and I'd see something that I knew we could fix and improve and I knew the mechanics I knew that technically was solvable. I knew the commercials that the outcome would be very valuable. But I was dealing with a person. It wasn't my business. It was someone else's business. And I was dealing with a person who was like, I've been ripped off before. Um, no way in heck am I going to waste that much money on something that doesn't work again. Right? 
that's not his problem. That's, that's mine to communicate and to work that through with him. And I think the, the epiphany for me all came down to that value of human communication and the ability to work through that. So where were you going wrong? What are the common pitfalls? And I work with a few technical companies yeah. in like my website business. And I wish you could talk to some of them because it's like, so what do you do? And it's like, duh, 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 duh. And like, but what are you solving for and for who? And it's like, duh, 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 duh. But like, so what are the common pitfalls people make with sales or lack of sales? Introduction, start from basics. A lot of people just aren't, don't have the confidence. They can't beat their own drum, right? So and this comes down to the business planning. If you know what you're doing is valuable. So if you're working for a company where you believe the product is good, you understand the management, you understand the direction, you understand where they're going and that is good, then it's a numbers game. You deal with a hundred people, you close one or two or five, depending on if they're just straight up first meets. So you've got to meet a hundred people. You can't go out there and speak to the first person, then speak to the second person, struggle into the third person now already deflated um, and then go, oh yeah, this is shit, it doesn't work. Right? Like, it's just, and, and this, unfortunately, no matter how many times I iterate it, is how most people think. They go in there like, the analysis of who you are and where you are versus who you think you are and where you think you are, there's such a big gap in everyone, right? And so, so it's always an internal game. And, and I think the sooner you can realize this is what I look like, this is what I sound like, this is who I am, that's the ability for you to push forward. So in a sales capacity, follow-up is huge and the ability to actually have the courage and commitment to go through the numbers, right? Even a bad salesman contacting numbers, you go through 100 people you will find what you say to them improves astronomically as long as you go in with a bright-eyed, bushy tail, intent to make the sale just as much as you did the first and second for the third and the 99th and the 100th, right? Most of it can be fixed. If you know the product's good, you know that underpinning and you're comfortable with that, that this is not just a job that you have to do to attend, but it's something that you believe you can do to achieve, then the numbers will fix most of the rest of it because you'll start to learn who you are and how you are as long as you're observational. When we get to the next step of it all, the next step of it is, is it starts to become more deeply technical and it starts to be actually um, having structures to break the ice, having structures to speak to the right people and identify decision makers. It starts to be once you do identify the decision makers, how to identify their actual pain, how to, how to go, oh, this is, you know, they're actually going to buy off me. They stand a chance because you can just pitch someone and get really excited and tell them all about the amazing things you're doing and have them go, oh, fantastic. But... Jenny already does that for me <laughs> or, or I actually, yeah. I actually don't even know what you're talking about or I don't need it. Yeah. Or, or thanks. Great idea. I'll go and do that myself. hundred percent. Getting into the technicals, you've got to be there as a person that they wind up knowing, liking and trusting that they identify that that pain is as real and that the solution needs to be done right now, that it's valuable, that the commitment for them to do it is easy. You know, it is something that they're prepared to do. And that the company and the product and the solution that you're bringing is something that they understand and understand can work for them. They don't need to understand the full technical, but they understand it will achieve the outcome that they seek to, to relieve the pain. And the ability to actually guide a conversation to get to that position with the right person, um, where you're able to, to look eyes, shake hands and commit to doing something, that's the bit that I didn't understand. That was the bit that I had to go down many rabbit holes and to be fair, still to this day do because, um, and, and this is, this is probably uh, a direct, one of those, what's, what's a value thing. Uh, there's nothing worse than being a deeply technical person 
believing you're great at sales. <laughs> and, and I'll explain this a little bit. Like, I am um, perfect example of the word vomit I'm giving you right now. I'm, a, I'm in a technical spot right now. It's, I'm able to speak socially. I'm able to, you know, communicate. But I'm, I'm showing you my thought process and methodology, and I'm thinking it out loud as best I can put the words in a construct. Technical people learn the sales methodology. We think we can do that, but our headspace is so logical. We miss on all the emotional cues and clues and we don't deliver on it all, mm, right? Interesting. When we get into social side, and this is what, again, when we let go of that technical and we actually move out of that space, we start to deal on all the emotive and the EQ really kicks in, not the IQ. And the, and the EQ is our ability to actually read another person. And sales is not about telling, it's about listening. So it's about probing and provoking. It's more your side of the equation here than, than my side in this podcast. You know, it's asking the right question to guide the person to the right outcome. Um, and the ability to control that is really important. So having the confidence and the knowledge of knowing so you don't let someone run off, but you've got the polite ability to bump in and go, that's really interesting. But how do you think about this? And bring them back to, you know, I've, I've been a terror. You know, we probably could have wrapped this up in 25 minutes if I was on point with short answers. But it wouldn't be the, uh, the big conversational show it is right now. So technical people will, will believe they're doing a great sales job but miss all the clues that actually make the sale. Salespeople um, really should sit in that EQ. The IQ needs to be done, but the, but the EQ and the ability to read that other person is actually where the sales successfully get made from or the closing rates jump up significantly. Um, it is technical, but you're operating from a listening to the other person, not telling them about the features and the amazing product that you solved. And technical people will love to tell you about everything they've done and they're doing, whereas salespeople will love to understand everything that you need and focus on how and only the bits that help you understand that this, this will do it for you. Do you think they're two different types of people or do you think, or they tend to be two different types of people or do you think that someone like yourself can do both? But I've always thought I could do both with a quick change and I'll be there, but it's only when I read my work when I've swapped over quickly that I realize I cannot be that person. Um, I am able to be both, but I routinely need to sleep or, or have a good breakaway and come back. Right. Um, once, once I've transitioned, I can transition and that, that's really easy to do, but it's not a normal and it does take active effort. I think routinely around with people, there are two different types of people. There's people that focus on that and it just tends to be the way it is, Ollie. Yeah. To be like work, work, those EQ, those people that are able to deal with people, people. Um, it's a question of, do you want to be in the fast lane or the general lane? And for me, I've always had to have a solid general layer. So I've always focused on being able to do both, but when I prioritize or focus in one of them, I become so much better and so much faster and so much more capable. Um, and in general, people tend to focus, you know, they, they don't tend to have a broad generic layer um, as deeply into topics. They tend to run off and become really good at, you know, your websites. Not going to serve you um, a huge amount to be a really expert on mechanics of, you know, combustion engines, you know, that's unless you're selling, you know, yeah, of so, course. You, so you drill down into how do I do websites and how do I communicate the value of what this website can do and you run down SEOs and yeah, it's, it's the deep side. So there are two people. Is it, is it better to be a generalist or a World specialist? Needs both. For the last like, few years, I keep trying to just go deep in one thing and it's only really now I've been like, okay, as an experiment, I'm not going to do that anymore and see what happens. Do you think there's hope for people like me who aren't cutting in straight into a niche, but just spreading bets, 
trying loads of different well, things. It, it depends on what your goal is, Ollie. I think that really, that, that would be the, the simple answer on that. What, what's the intent and what's the, what's the ideal goal? Um, the general knowledge is awesome because it allows you to assess opportunities and have a broader spectrum of things to look at, right? There's, there's just so many ways to make a, make a go in the world. And um, against comparing yourself to others um, is just fraught with all the failure man can put upon himself, if I'm to be very philosoph philosophical about it all. It's never about others. It's about you. It's about where you're at, right? You won't find another peer or another contemporary that's at the exact same spot as you. And if you do, it's very likely that you wind up competitive with them in a, in a net negative outcome, right? What we do find is we find people that are um, co collaborative or um, compatible and collaborative, really good people. They come with a different skill base that works towards the same goal when we need it. And that's where co-founders actually do come in to benefit because two is greater than one, not greater than one in the sense that we can both do it at the same time, but you can do this, I can do that. And we can achieve twice as much in the same time. That's a very beneficial. The general side of things, um, everyone is a generalist, Ollie. So I'll, I'll challenge you on that in the sense that it's just what layer of general knowledge do you need in order to achieve something? And um, I, mm. I, I've always been on that layer. I haven't got something to do and I'm at a crossroads in life. I will start absorbing information like a sponge from everything that I've got around me. Um, if I've got a general interest in something, I'll start absorbing information related to that. Um, I love diving down rabbit holes associated with things like that because I'm looking for the black sheep or the, you know, or the white crow. Um, I'm looking for the one that, that I'm looking for the pattern break. Where, where is that pattern break and why did that pattern break? And I think if, if this is resonating with you, that's for me where I start to go, right, well, this is always it is apart from that. What does that mean? How does that work? Is there benefit from if that can be replicated? Is that something that is of beneficial to people? And, Routinely, that's how a niche kind of does unfold from a generalized perspective is you look at something from a fresh eyes and fresh perspective and you all of a sudden uncover something that from your lack of knowledge isn't the norm. And then you dive into it and you're like, oh, well, actually, you know, turns out lots of people love to know how to carve a pumpkin <laughs> right? with, a, with a butter knife because I don't have this fancy carving knife kit. Right? So all of a sudden now you've got a niche on how to carve a Halloween pumpkin with a butter knife. Right, and that's just it's such a silly, you know, analogy, but you know, that that's a real generic layer that you come in at something, and if, if you're not looking and just observing, then you don't find it. Um, ChatGPT provides all the expert knowledge you need. You know, to, to go back to one of the tech areas, right? These general AI tools, there, you know, Google answered a lot of the things before. ChatGPT is now taking those responses to another level. So ChatGPT is able to turn mm. how do you carve a pumpkin, you know, or even a very technical what is SEO, it starts to turn that into a whole bunch of phrases like domain rankings and these sorts of things that now you don't know what those are, but it can answer what those are and it can even suggest or you can Google that and find the sites to go and figure that one out and take that. So mm. you've got this mentor guider of sorts that if you ask the right prompts, you can get the information you need. So is it worthwhile? Um, no, because a generalist all of a sudden you go through the tools we've got available to ourselves and you know, you put yourself in three hours, four hours research, you've got a pretty detailed, specific knowledge on something from, from a very generic position that you started. So that's, mm. and I think we'll, we'll find from now on, in the, I mean, that, that is how most engineers, that's what engineers do already, right? Software developers, that's exactly what they do. Website designers, 100% what they do, right? We, we, we go, oh, we're going to do this. How do I, <laughs> how do I make it red? 
search HTML, you know, search hex red codes. <laughs> and yeah. away, away we dive down these gaps. So I think there's a lot of hope for journalists. I think okay, so we here's... also got to acknowledge we're all journalists, just our journey through life of the things that we're interested in and intentional about delivers us advanced specialized skills in certain areas as we go. That's very interesting. And something I've been thinking about a lot recently is like people on podcasts ask these questions like I just did. Is it better to be a specialist or a generalist? And you can have that anything. Like the, it's basically the yin and the yang, which is better. But if you think about it, there's different points in your life when either at a different point in time or for a different duration, you have to use both of those things strategically at that given point. So if anyone subscribes to like a certain framework, you're going to get in trouble eventually because you need to know and learn when to yield each one. Like if I'm doing research broad, stay general, if I'm starting a website business, then I need to know the specialty of that. So a question I've got for you going off the back of that, and this is a bit more on like yeah. the techie side again. So ChatGPT is holding people's hands down the rabbit hole you talked about and it shines a light and it's like, okay, this is how you go down the rabbit hole. So when you used to do it, well, when you did it like, 10, 15 years ago at Argonne, that was your self-guided approach. Does as that a young, mean... As a young tacker, it's we, gonna we be... didn't have... I dreamt of tools like we've got right now. Holy gosh. I would, you know, yeah, it'd be, be incredible to have this, you know, the youth, the enthusiasm, the energy, the drive, the focus, you know, that and, and zero other life interactions. <laughs> God, like the mountains that could be moved in like days um, would be incredible. How I did it back then, we had libraries, we had the internet. It wasn't like we didn't have the internet, but the internet didn't have all the information we needed. Yeah, we had a lot more um, specialized knowledge repositories. So finding those specialized knowledge repositories mm. and then diving through them was, was always a, you know, a lively way. We used to joke about it because I used to use the text-to-speech functions on that an awful lot because I'd, I'd smash through stuff all day long till my eyes couldn't look at the screen any longer and then I'd start having the screen read it out to me. <laughs> That was, you know, that was literally <laughs> how, how I got through most of it. The layer that was on top of that back in the old day, which I think is something that should always be embraced still today, and, and I don't understand how people um, don't value it proportionately enough, is everyone I could bump into that was doing anything related to where I was going, I made sure to meet them. And I actually, I used to ask them to be my mentor. Um, so I would run around and I'd try to get everyone I possibly can. And like a mentorship, when they asked and clarify what that is, it's like, I just want to have a couple of coffees with you over the period of the next year. Um, it'd, just, it'd be just absolutely my pleasure. I'll buy the coffees. Um, you know, if I could just have moments of your time. Um, this is what I want to do with my life. And I really, really value understanding how you got to where you are with yours. Because I see elements of what you're doing as something that I believe could be incredibly valuable to me. And, and yeah, when we dove into it, I just had to say, because quite frankly, I don't want to spend 30 years to learn those lessons. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're the chairman of one of the five best, um, you know, engineering consultancy businesses here in Western Australia. Like, can I please just sit down with you and understand, you know, how you do you, um, what that actually means? Yeah, um, yeah. And 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 across yes. the spectrum, into into people that are amazing at sales, into people that were marketing, advertising, the people that I saw from. Everyone's got value to give. Um, some of them low liars, some of them high liars. Like, there, there's always a lesson to learn, but. When I saw something that was interesting, like, and, and what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say, it wasn't always just I did. I did obviously naturally approach all the CEOs and all the chairmen and directors and, you know, and, and the high value people, I, be, I believe it. 
But I was also really interested in the people that had a spark in their eye or people that had something. You just meet those ultra charismatic people from time to time in life. I, I was always fascinated by them too because I'm like, cool, you're at a much later age than me in life and you've got something. I don't know what it is, but you've got something. What is it? <laughs> right? And, and being, able, you know, being able to have that conversation. Um, you know, the, the conversations lead to just sometimes different lenses. And I'm, I'm a very intentional person. Ollie, I th- I'm actually picking up that you are very much so too through the, through the way you react in, in conversations. It's, um, it's listening to these conversations and having these conversations with the intent on how do I increase my personal best? And that's, that, that, that's what I go into everything for. It's like, cool, if we're, if we're going to do this, I'm going to take this person out. It's like, how does this help me become better? And then going in, that's the lens that I would go in there for. It's like, awesome. I'd like to be memorable. I'd like to hear their stories, be valuable, and, if, and be a resource for them if they ever believe I could be. Yeah, absolutely. But then I'm going Funny in there enough, actually, I was in a nightclub two, myself, two weeks ago with my friend's dad. And I was chewing his ear off the entire time about hydrogen gas and the future of solar and this, that. <laughs> so, yeah, any, any opportunity. And in fact, when we first met, I think that's what happened. I think I introduced myself as, oh, what do you do? And then we're watching an AFL game. And I just talked to you the whole time. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I yeah, was purposely okay. trying to avoid what I, I do. Was just about to ask something. What well. was it? Yes, no, we did, we did. What were we just saying before? We had a lovely catch up, man. It was great. But then we both agreed that Rich Dad, Poor Dad was a big eye opener and sales is an important skill. But I think I'm trying to probe for more of a thing like a curtain that's lifted. It's not common knowledge, potentially isn't accessible via Google, where you've met someone and, I don't know, maybe they, they're oil shippers. And it turns out that the profit margin on shipping oil between South Africa and Argentina is like 95%. Like, is there anything like that where you've had a conversation? You've been like, I can't believe everyone doesn't know this. Look, I think I can't pinpoint anything that would be worth bringing up right now. Two, I always love the fact that when I have to acknowledge we've had a conversation for so long, I've ran off point and I can't even remember where we're talking. It makes me feel like I'm in a very weakened position. Um, but yeah, the, the, I've totally forgot where we we're going with the mental things. The epiphany moments where it's like... Sorry, I just turn my light on. I'm back. I'm listening. Um, yeah. The one that's most relevant, Ollie, to dive in is, is literally... Oh, you good? Yeah, no, that's all right. Um, it's just with them. People don't actually realize that like they don't make a decision for who they're going to hire until they've sat down and had those face-to-face meetings like routinely, like, and job seekers, you know, that, that, that routinely someone thinks they're going to hire them because of the CV or the cover letter or the introductory email that they attach their CV to, um, that that's actually going to get them the job. And people, think that's how they, they when you explain it to me you talk a little bit deeper they understand that oh no i have to have the interview and all that this is just how, how it starts off but there's this massive process around they believe that's going to be their best impression because that's what has been done by everyone they know beforehand and they don't realize that when someone reads a cv and you get a hundred applications what what happens is from me looking through 100 applications, I'm going, I can only meet five of these people tops. I'm only going to bother calling five to 10 of them. 
I've got to get rid of 95 people here, right? So I, I spend my whole time, two weeks, sometimes to read these and mark them up, minimum two hours to read these things up. I go through them all and I'm just going, not good enough, not enough experience, weird sounding something, um, not, not, not located geographically where, they're, where we yeah. need them from. Um, Arbitrary shortcuts. Like this university, not that right. university. Um, I know people that went to that one. So these arbitra arbitrary, absolute, oh, but building up a neural pattern for me the whole way of, um, of get rid of them, get rid of them, get rid of them, prove he's not right, prove he's not right, prove they're not right, prove they're not right, shouldn't be. And then we go into an interview stage where I have an interview with someone and I sit there and I'm in the back of my head because I've just built this awesome brain pattern from doing this job of prove they're not right. And I'm in an interview with someone who's amazing. They're like, they're an incredible human. Like they've done some of the most tremendous work in their field. And they're sitting here across the desk, sweaty palm usually, trying to explain to me how they are the person who can do this role. And I'm sitting there like a, you know, paraphrasing, but like an asshole, because it's where I've framed myself up to be, going, prove me you're not right. Prove you're wrong. Spell this <laughs> correct. Use a wrong acronym. Um, equate that incorrectly while we discuss it here. Forget a semicolon. Ah, knew you weren't right. Right? Um, Oh, you're a salesman. Oh, yeah, no. Forget to qualify me properly in the discussion. Don't smile enough. Shake hands weakly. Prove it. Knew it. Knew it. There we go. Next one. Right? And obviously, you don't do that face to face, but in the back of your head and in the back of everyone in that process, that's what's going on. It creates this artificial environment of meeting people where um, someone's coming in from a job seeking perspective, knowing this, feeling like they need to talk shit up, pretend they're something they're not, talk about their bests and their accolades and all the... Whereas mm. they just need to be in there saying, hey, my name's Paul. This is what I'm, you know, this role's really awesome, but what are you hoping to hire me for, right? Where's the value you want me to throw into this team? Um, if we were to sit here and look back on this at the one month and the three months, like what would you be hoping I actually achieved? Um, you know, it, and then also I can see myself doing that. Here's how I would approach it. Would that work with, you know, with what you're expecting? And all of a sudden, you know, the good conversation, I'm, not, I'm obviously familiar with how to do this because I've, you know, educated myself heavily on the, on the topic. But what happens in the meeting someone first in the verb process is we get to that level of conversation at the very first interview, not third interview in, a, in an old school phase. And we get to that level of in the, with, with people right because when you see someone and you make that in gut instinct decision that this is someone that could do the job and you're framed now in a mindset of, I believe Ollie can do this job but how's it going to work with Ollie? You have an entirely different conversation with that person. The conversation is about, right, Monday when we're doing this job, Ollie, um, we're going to need to um, we're going to need to talk to this new customer about the website and how we're going to set that up. We've got to encapsulate what he believes his value proposition is with what we understand the value proposition the market's looking for in that niche requires so that we can message match his marketing mm -hmm. to the point where he actually... Well, we, we, we can feel confident that we can say we'll achieve human increase in X, Y, Z, right? That we're, we're having a conversation about how we do the job and what that will look like doing it together as opposed to, hey, Ollie, prove you know what the words SEO mean. Okay, cool. Can't kick you out for this one. Prove you know what domain rankings are. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just a different, different headspace and the headspace makes it much more human and much more um, conversational as well in those interviews because 
all of a sudden you're not trying to prove you're wrong. You're, you're trying to have a conversation about what you'll do. So it's actually quite a positive framed conversation. It's both, both people moving in unison in the right direction. We're dealing with people trying to figure out how to do the purpose we're coming together for as opposed to qualifying and looking for a reason to just get rid of you and say you're not good enough. And for me, that, that, that headspace change is, is the one thing that changes everything. Um, so why, why is that so valuable? What is the thing that I know that I believe no one else knows is that when you get to the core of human relationships and intention between people for joining paths for a period of time, that, that intention is everything. And, and whether we like it or love it, we do it by our gut and everything in our life forward, whether I, as much as we try to technically justify it, um, job it was always framed by our I've gut. I've been through the process many times. I hope you are successful with Useverb and my kids never have to do that. And they have a way, as you say, of achieving that like harmony of gut sooner rather than go through all this rubbish. So yeah, I think it's amazing. I think your company is amazing. And yeah, I really value your time talking to me today. I'm gonna, I wanna bring it to a close now because it's two hours and I want you to come back on. I don't want you to think of this as like a mission that we'll have to come back to. So in that vein, what are your goals for Verb? And maybe even there's people listening who might want to work. <laughs> so what are your goals? What do you need help with? Where, where's, where's the company going? Just lay that out a bit, just to round it off. With Verb, look, we, from, from the core of the tech side of things, we're, we're just iterating. Like for us, it's just iterate, iterate, iterate. Um, it'll never stop. It, it's, it's a chain. We do releases when we're experimenting with the bi-weekly releases to weekly releases. We're currently on weekly releases from a technical thing. So our product just gets better every week. We've got a pipeline that's mapped out about three years at any one time. So where we're going um, is the future. How we're getting there is how quick as a team we can actually get there. When we're talking about product into market, so we're kind of at that early market entry, product market fit stage right now. We've got something that can transform lives. And what we're looking for is, look, yeah, we, we definitely have an affiliate process. So someone who's a mentor, a career coach, someone who's a small business, um, a recruiter. Um, we offer value to all of those. Um, we're, we're looking for people that are acknowledging they've got a problem with they can't find and attract talent. We're looking for people that are having a problem of I've got too much talent and we can't identify the ones that we need to invest our time with. So in other words, they're... You know, that, that small business owner, as, a, as an example, because I know you're dealing with similar ones, Ollie, they're, they've got their wife or their brother yeah, yeah. or sister or mum and dad reading job applications in the evening because they're too busy trying to do the job <laughs> and, and they need to grow. And those people are the next bottleneck in their business. We've got an amazing value proposition for them to help them achieve better results. Job seekers, we've got an incredible job seeking course that will explain from the basics right the way through to the most advanced on how it actually works. You know, it's called Job Search Secrets and it's literally, um, you know, it's a ripoff of Russell Brunson. <laughs> you know, uh, let's just say ripoff, it's a model. You know, we, we didn't know what to call it, but we we're like, yeah, that actually really has the best sounding of all the things we did. That's really just a guide to help young job seekers actually understand okay. the market and understand the market in a direct approach of what they need to know, not what they think they need to know. So we're, um, we're heavily in the process of having a look to to build that up it's also one of the ways we might get around the platform problem um you know we've, we, we sell we sell two sides of the marketplace we sell job seekers on how to apply for jobs and we sell companies on how to um you know a, a tool that helps them a tool on both sides we have free offerings so you know when we talk about selling we're 
we're, we're, we're sharing more than selling. We're trying to educate them on this new process and what it's capable of doing for them and introduce them to introduce them to it as a different way to approach life. So yeah, love, love that young, young, young people that need to, um, that, that want to find a way to get into the market. We, we'd love to hear from those and they can absolutely have a look and check it out. It's free. There's no barriers to entry to have a look at it and try it. Might just teach you what you actually sound like so that you can feel more confident saying hello. Um, people that are growing a business and successful at it already, there's awesome. no safer, faster way to awesome. Well, I encourage people to check it out at useverb.com. One last thing before we finish, because it's just made my mind go, and I have to ask you this. You say your pipeline is three years out. The one, yeah. Is that for cost-saving tech upgrades? Because how could you know what the consumer will want in, yes. in three years and what you're going to be changing? So we are so we. I get deep on topics. We are very deep down the line of where we want to go. The constraints for us are what we can technically achieve and how we can achieve that. So we run everything we possibly can, and we know um, at ten to twenty moves as best I can possibly forecast it out. We have obviously the moves that are one to three to five steps ahead of but us. But how, how do you assign these? How do you assign these? How do you know which ones to do? They're just waiting for resources to be assigned. As we go further down that list. Okay, um, I've got an amazing team for starters that, that covers a lot of areas. But when we're looking at, we're looking at consumer industry trends. We're looking at supply and demand of the services then and what that will add. We're looking at where we, our end objectives for where we seek to achieve and where, where we hope to be. Okay, so it's a flexible pipeline as well. That, um, we believe will be the next steps to adding more value to the people we seek to serve. So the further out you get down the pipeline, the less they're actually technically fleshed out. But we're like, um, you know, a news feed is something that Inverb gets toyed around. I can't see the value. It's not particularly where we want, but it's one of these features that oh, we I have see. for for a couple of years down the pipeline that's floating between a couple of years to never. It's something we've identified as something that could definitely deliver value. Um, so that's for, so there's from a feature like that that we've actually fleshed out to the extent that we have a unique offering we could integrate in which would yep. make it worth coming to but it's nowhere near the point of detailed um development handover um we have we have things like our a video messaging on our actual platform which we pulled out of it a while ago because it wasn't deemed core and we didn't have the resources to keep it alive so that's something that we'll be rolling out within the next four to six months and be put in there so people can video message to each other that's detailed mapped out that's engineered you know from a project management perspective it's just not resourced okay. out to code so that becomes something that's that, that's you know immediate pipeline to fix out. So and in between the rest of them, everything we can kind of map out um, and have the ability through our brainstorming sessions. And yeah, it answers it. It answers it. Sessions is, is Firstly, I think you should get a documentary crew to film this whole pipeline. thing. <laughs> um, Does that answer it? And secondly, I think I was just trying to understand a bit. Like, do you sort of make the decisions internally, <laughs> or how much do you listen to the market? How much is customer feedback feeding into? your decisions about future features and things like this. Customer feedback feeds into absolutely into some of the release features um, tweaking 100%. There was a quote um, by Henry Ford, I yeah. believe it was that if I'd asked people what they needed, they would have told me faster horses. 
right? Um, so in that, you can probably map out a lot of it. If I'd asked people what they need in this thing, they would have said video interviews and they would have said a template cover letter and CV, right? A way to faster populate my template cover and CV. In fact, the, most of the industry moved towards easy apply button. It was a one, one thing pressed all button, you know, quick, you clicked it. It was easy apply because you'd already uploaded your CV and you'd uploaded your cover letter and what well, that click of the button had applied. It causes a nightmare on the other side of the equation because now I'm an employer and you know, I've, I've actually got some of those roles. And whenever we get into web or some form of marketing, we can get a thousand applications, right? No, no, this you know is what, good. This you is know good. the time, like by making it super fast for one side of the equation, this is the platform thing. Apologize, I'm taking 30 seconds, a bit more. From the job seeker's perspective, if you solve for a job seeker and you compartmentalize and you box out the employer and their, their journey, you get easy apply. Right, boom, apply. My time investment, I didn't even read the job application because I can tell you from experience, most of them don't, mm. right? They've literally read the title, looked at the location and gone, yeah, that'll be good money, I'll apply, right? Their investment, sometimes five seconds, right? Employer side, I don't know whether that person put five seconds into this or has spent the last three days imagining how much value they can contribute to my company, right? So I've now got an application pool of a hundred to sometimes over a thousand people that have applied to me where I, do I give them the three seconds back and go, no, or do I spend five minutes of my time researching their CV, reading into their experience, looking into it, Facebooking, LinkedIn, Twittering, um, Googling their name to find out who this person actually is and see a picture of them. So I understand mark them up on a metric and then put them into my talent pool. Right. What's happening with small business owners is that's what they're doing. And this person, when they're picking up the phone to go, um, hi, how are you? Um, you applied to our job two weeks ago or, you know, whenever the process was. They're like, sorry, who is this? What? Oh, I, I don't remember that. Um, what do you do anyway? And you met with someone who you've literally just weeded down all these people to who's got the disdain to not even know who they actually And then, so what in return we get is we get all these solutions for employers that sit there and go, well, you know what? These bastards waste our time. So what we're going to do is build a system that wastes their time. We're going to build an AI bot that conversationally engages with them and asks them these 20 questions and takes, puts them through a video interview process that chews up an hour of their time, um, making them sweat by blink, blink, blink yeah. tell me about yourself, right? And then sitting there for two minutes awkwardly explaining, oh, and I left my last uh, job because I, um, oh, um, and, uh, um, and, uh, no one knows to just say the basics. So amazing because now I've got all this content and then it runs through and it says this person, that person, and it saves me time and it recommends three people to me. And I'm like, cool. I call those three people. Routinely those three people know they're that because they've invested and it's not because they've done it, but they've just invested an hour of their life plus to get to that point, right? So they do know who I am. So I get a better result and better feeling, but I've missed out on a lot of talent and a lot of candidates. What we had to do was we had to balance that where it didn't waste job seekers time, it actually valued them as humans. And we didn't waste employers time because we need to value them as humans too. We need to know what their intention is and what their intention is. And where's the comfy middle ground that automates their process and makes it beautiful and lets them find the people that should be working for them, that they want to work for them. And what's the process that helps these people invest sufficient time to make their application stand out so that they're ultra efficient with their time. And where verbs come in the process is 
the 30 seconds that we 27 seconds that we allow them to make um you know we've got augmented cover letters and augmented cvs that roll over their video so there's never more than about 27 seconds invested as an employer in a mm. candidate and a candidate can film yeah. and film and retake and film and retake and you know that's it's pretty beautiful tech in the way that you can actually work until you're happy with it because we don't care to screen this person right the way down to oh yeah perfect you've hit all these credentials there's lots of other beautiful quiz and yeah. you know survey tools that this you can makes... use for those things we care to find no. two people and get them talking as humans no, as fast no. as possible right so we're... that and that's that it, makes I'm sorry, me excited yeah, won't wait for and to it, that's the bit that, that that, that just seems to be now as you're talking yeah, i'm sort of thinking there's kind of painful. a couple of different types of innovation and the classic thing which is probably publicized the most and like going through y combinator and all these silicon valley companies like companies like airbnb airbnb in many ways is an optimizer and so their route of going mvp to market iterate mvp listen to what the market wants they're just improving the hotel booking process which has been fantastic but that as a problem is not as nuanced and complex as matching people for occupations and what they spend a lot of their life doing. So the fact that you've said we respect the market, but the market might not naturally know or respond to the right things that is best for the market. I'm going to, we're going to be the innovators who fix that problem. It's like James Dyson did with the Hoover. No one thought Hoovers were important. They didn't think see-through would be good because they thought if you see dust, the market would hate that. Complete opposite. I mean, Elon's not going out and bloody testing MVPs of rockets yep. and seeing what the market says. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad we had that little bit at the end. I'm super excited for you. I'm super excited for your company and I'll be watching very closely. And yeah, maybe I'll be sending a few job applications soon on, on, on useverb.com. Yeah, and you, Paul. Thank you so much for coming on. It was good. That champion, Ollie. It's uh, awesome. awesome. To catch up with you, right. Man. Absolutely. I'll cut that out. <laughs>